You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Mystery of Death. Fifteen lectures, translated by Simon Blaxland de Lange. This is Lecture 12, given in Elberfeld on the 13th of June, 1915, entitled Spiritual Science as a Conviction, the Etheric Body as a Reflection of the Universe. We are at present living in the midst of an era when there are events that arouse all manner of feelings in the human soul of the deepest and most meaningful kind. We are involved with events which lead to that which is forever regarded by spiritual science as a riddle, namely death, occurring many, many times over a relatively short period throughout the earth. We live at a time when countless souls are having to bear pain and sorrow and at a time when it would be our hope that significant forces for the furtherance of the evolution of mankind may be engendered. If so much has to be born out of pain and sorrow, and if indeed spiritual science teaches us that much has to be born out of pain and sorrow, spiritual scientific studies may in this fateful time be especially suitable for awakening within us wellsprings of confidence and hope. Thus, some thoughts will be presented to you today that are not directly but nonetheless indirectly connected with such feelings as may be evoked within us in this sorrowful, storm-tossed time. What we see and feel so often taking place at present is that human beings are leaving the physical plane at a relatively early stage of their physical existence. The distinctive aspect of such experiences as these is that young lives are called away from the physical plane. We know that when someone passes through the portal of death, he has to give his physical body over to the elements of the earth, that as he crosses this threshold, he is at first still united with his etheric body, his astral body, and his ego. We know that after a relatively short time, this etheric body is separated from the person concerned and that he undertakes his further journey that he has to make between death and a new birth in the ego and astral body, united with those members of his spiritual nature that he is initially able to acquire only in the spiritual world. Whereas for his further journey, during the time between death and a new birth, the etheric body is separated from the human individuality and follows its own path. Now it must strike us that when someone dies young, this etheric body must be in a completely different state from when a person dies who has reached a normal stage of life. We know that scientists speak of how forces can be transformed but not lost. Thus it is recognized as a truth of physical existence, that forces are never lost, but are merely transformed. Spiritual science teaches that this must also be applied to the spiritual world, 
when an etheric body is cast off from someone who has passed through the gate of death at a young age. This is an etheric body that would have been able to sustain this person on the physical plane for many decades. After all, an etheric body must be so constituted that it can provide all those life forces that he will require until old age. If someone crosses the threshold of death in, say, his twenty-fifth, twenty-sixth, or thirtieth year, his etheric body parts company from him, but this etheric body still has forces through which he would have been enabled to maintain physical human life, perhaps into his sixties, seventies, or eighties. These forces are in the etheric body. They are not lost. And precisely at such a time as the present, when so many such etheric bodies are being, as it were, entrusted to the spiritual worlds, we need to concern ourselves with the question, what happens with the etheric bodies of those people who have passed at so young an age through the gate of death? It will be good if, in order to answer such a question really properly, we familiarize ourselves with the path followed by the etheric body of a human being during his life between birth and death. The outward physical body of a human being constantly becomes older. This is not the case with the etheric body. However difficult it may seem to be to grasp this, it is not at all the case with the etheric body that it is always getting older. For in the same measure that the physical body grows older, the etheric body becomes ever younger, and it reaches what one might call a certain childlike stage of etheric existence at the time when the human individual is of an age when he would normally cross the threshold of death. Thus we must say to ourselves, when we enter physical earthly existence through birth, the etheric body that has united itself with our physical body is, comparatively speaking, old and becomes ever younger in the course of life and reaches its childhood stage when we pass through the gate of death. We could therefore also say that when someone dies when he is young, his etheric body is not young enough, but retains a certain quality of age. But what does this actually mean? We may find the following example instructive in this respect. It is one that a number of you will already be familiar with, but I must nevertheless mention it again here, in that it is a concrete instance from recent times which a number of friends may have experienced. This concrete example relates to a young child, the little son of one of our members. It happened that on an evening when there was a lecture in Dornach, we learned after the lecture that a seven-year-old boy, the son of our friend Feiss, was missing. It was soon clear that a great misfortune must have occurred. Late that afternoon, a furniture van had come to the vicinity of the building in Dornach, curiously, to an area where such a van had not ventured for a long time, or perhaps never, and where none have most likely come since. This furniture van had overturned at a certain place. This had happened toward evening, and nothing further had been noticed, but the boy was missing. And when, between ten and twelve o'clock in the evening, our friends, together with others, made every effort to lift the furniture van, 
which those to whom it belonged had decided to leave until the following morning, because it had fallen very awkwardly, thus making the task very difficult. It emerged that the child, little Theodore Weiss, had passed by at the very moment when the van had overturned, and that it had fallen on the child. This child, who was only seven years old, was a very likable boy, a child with remarkably fine qualities. In order to place such a fact in the light of spiritual scientific consciousness, I should like to recall a logical train of thoughts that I have often cited in our circles. I have often said that people can confuse causes and effects through ordinary thinking, through undisciplined thinking, and that such confusions between cause and effect are actually very frequently encountered. I have tried to show this by means of an example, an example that is only intended as a means of illustration. Suppose that you see in the distance someone walking beside a stream. You then see that he falls into the stream, and in your efforts to arrive at the spot you see that at the very place where the person fell into the water there is a stone. You try to pull him out of the water, but he is dead. What could be more natural than to say that he stumbled over the stone, fell into the stream, and was drowned? But this need not be the case, for a simple physical investigation may perhaps tell us that at the moment when he had come to this place, and without his destiny having had anything to do with the stone or with anything else, he had suffered a heart attack and fell into the water as a result. So that the heart attack was the cause of his falling into the water. Whereas if one does not go to the trouble of finding out what really happened, one would say that his falling into the water was the cause of his death. One would therefore assume the opposite of what actually occurred. It is more difficult to discern the relationship between cause and effect when one is concerned with events connected with the spiritual world. Thus one must say that in a case such as that of this child, who meets his death through such extraordinary circumstances, and they were extraordinary in several other respects, one has, from a higher standpoint, not to think that this happened because the furniture van came along and overturned and the child was by some chance underneath it, and that therefore the van was the cause of the child's death. The right way to think about such a case, spiritual, scientifically, is that the child's karma had run its course, and that the reason for the van arriving at that place was actually that the child was to meet its death, that, therefore, the van merely provided the outward circumstances to enable the death that was prefigured by the child's karma to take place. To express it trivially, one could say that the child's higher self's wish that the child pass through the gate of death had arranged the whole situation, the whole series of events. To be sure, when someone who thinks in accordance with our present time hears such an idea expressed, he will find it perfectly crazy. However, spiritual science has to show us that much that people consider crazy today is actually true. The significant point is, however, that in this particular case the etheric body of a seven-year-old child separated itself from the child's individuality, from what goes further with the ego and astral body through the spiritual worlds. It is not now my intention to speak about the further path, 
taken by the individuality of little Theodor Feiss. My task is rather to draw attention to the fact that, in this case, the etheric body was one that had nurtured physical life with its life forces for only seven years, even though the forces residing within it could have sustained a long life between birth and death. These forces remained within the etheric body. And the significant thing is that anyone who had a spiritual connection with the building that we intend to erect in Dornach, in the service of spiritual science, could know directly from little Theodor Feiss's death what had become of his etheric body. So much needs to be done in connection with the building. We shall be speaking further about the inspirations that need to be brought down from the spiritual world today. Helping forces are needed if all that must be brought from the spiritual world indeed becomes available to us. And it became apparent that since the death of little Theodor Feiss, our building in Dornach has been enveloped to quite a wide extent by the enlarged etheric body of this child as by an aura. It is possible to determine how widely it extends. If you see the Dornach building, and those who have already seen it are aware of this, it is a circular building with two cupolas. There we have a boiler house, shaped in a particular way, in accordance with spiritual scientific principles, and here we have another house where the glass windows for the building are cut. Readers aside, there is a diagram here, and of readers aside. I might mention, by the way, that somewhere here is the so-called House Hansi, where we live. Now, it is remarkable that this aura of little Theodor Feiss envelops the whole building as far as this spot where the wood begins, then past the boiler house, and then, after passing directly through this building where the windows are being cut, passes by House Hansi without enclosing it. Thus, as one enters the building, one actually steps within this etheric aura. I have often drawn attention to the fact that the etheric body becomes larger when it frees itself from the physical body. We should not, therefore, be surprised that this etheric body appears in so an enlarged a state. In this etheric body are the forces of mediation that enable one to receive certain impressions from the spiritual world that one needs in order to incorporate them in the forms and artistic structure of the building. And anyone whose task it is to work on the building knows what he owes to this etheric aura. I shall never hesitate to admit that since the death of little Theodor Feiss, the work has been made possible for me through the mediating forces for inspirations that have been made available by this boy's etheric body, which has been enveloping the building. One could well pride oneself in not needing such mediating forces, but what really matters is to acknowledge the truth of the situation. If we bring the facts that have just been described before our minds, we will gain an impression of how it is with an etheric body that has to be separated from a human life when this life is brought to an end, when the person is still young. Now, it is important to be aware that the etheric body of a human being does not continue to be some kind of nebulous formation within which the physical body is embedded. 
Indeed, we also do not come to know the nature of a physical human body by describing it merely as a mass of muscles and bones and so on, but by recognizing it as a kind of temple of the divinity, as a microcosm. We only rightly come to know what a physical body is if we become aware that the forms that it takes on are indeed derived from the whole universe, that man is by virtue of his physical body a form of miraculous proportions. Whoever is able to sense the feelings expressed in the first conversation of the second mystery play titled The Soul's Probation will form some idea of how an individual human being is with respect to his physical body, placed into his physical existence by all the hierarchies. The whole world of the gods sees it as its aim to incorporate man in physical existence. We can come to a full awareness of the significance of this physical body if we take account of the observations of clairvoyant knowledge. Clairvoyant knowledge comes about when a person draws his soul-spiritual nature forth from his physical body, and is then able to become a consciously perceiving agent in the realm of soul and spirit outside his body. There is essentially no fundamental difference between someone who perceives clairvoyantly and someone who is asleep, whose soul-spiritual nature has also withdrawn from the physical body. By virtue of the fact that clairvoyant consciousness is able to perceive outside the physical body, it can form an idea of what is happening with someone who is asleep. The following schematic drawing may make this easier to understand. Let us suppose that this is the physical bodily nature, and this is the soul-spiritual nature of someone who is asleep. Of course, when someone is awake, the soul-spiritual part is within the physical bodily part. We are therefore visualizing a person who is asleep. The physical body and the etheric body are then in the bed, but they do not contain the astral body and the ego, as they do in the waking state. But one could say that what the astral body and the ego bring about within the physical body during the waking state does not entirely cease during sleep. As far as any initial observation is concerned, the person lying in the bed is as though devoid of soul, but this is not the case or a clairvoyant consciousness. The clairvoyant must give an entirely different interpretation of this sleeping physical and etheric human being. He must say, During the entire day the region of the earth where people are now sleeping was bathed in sunlight. Parenthesis, I am speaking of normal circumstances where one sleeps during the night and is awake during the day not of those prevailing in the city and metropolitan environments of today. Close parenthesis. Darkness descends over the region where the sun was shining during the day. Remarkably, one notices that the earth as a living being begins to think, and the organs through which the earth thinks are these sleeping human bodies. Just as human beings think by means of their brain, so does the earth think through these sleeping human bodies. It is constantly perceiving during the day. Its perception consists in its being illumined by the sun from cosmic space. That is the earth's perception. While, during the night, 
it assimilates in thought what it has perceived. The earth thinks, says the clairvoyant, and it thinks by making use of sleeping human beings. Every sleeping human being is in a certain sense a brain molecule of the earth. Our physical body is so ordered that when we are not ourselves using it, it can enable the earth to think through it. But just as the earth thinks through the physical body, so does it imagine, and you know what imaginative knowledge is, everything that is not earthly on the earth itself, that which belongs to the earth from the whole cosmos. In man's sleeping physical body one discerns parts of the earth's brain, and in man's etheric body, when he is asleep, one discerns an imaginative picture of that part of the universe that initially belongs to the earth. In wonderful pictures there stream into the etheric body all the forces that must flow to the earth from the etheric world in order that the events of this earth can take place. Just as man belongs as a physical being to the earth, it is equally true that as an etheric being he belongs to the heavens. Moreover, we can only use our physical body as an organ of thinking because it is organized for this purpose, because in a certain sense the earth sets it free while we are awake. Equally, we can only use our etheric body in such a way that it gives us life forces because the heavens make it available to us during our waking hours and because the heavenly forces of imagination are transformed within us into life forces while we are awake. Thus we would wish to speak of our etheric body not merely as a vague nebulous form but as a microcosmic structure reflecting the heavens. Our etheric body is given to us at our birth as a specially perfected structure. When we are born our etheric body inwardly glistens and shines with pure imaginations that come to it from the great universe. It is a magnificent reflection of the universe. And whatever a person is able to acquire during his life by way of education, knowledge and forces of will and feeling as he approaches old age between birth and death is derived from this same etheric body. The cosmic forces of the heavens make available to us what they have to give to us during life between birth and death. Hence, as etheric beings, we are once again young if we have pursued a normal life between birth and death because we have drawn everything forth from this etheric body. But if an etheric body belonging to a youthful body goes through the portal of death, there is still much, much heavenly light within it. It therefore becomes a mediator of such forces as I have been describing. Quite irrespective of what becomes of the individuality of such a human soul as the one of whom we have been speaking, its etheric body becomes something of the nature of a heavenly gift, a gift of the spiritual worlds. This etheric body is therefore able to have the inspiring influence that I have indicated. It would be going much too far to speak of the particular karma that such a human soul must have to be able to make such a sacrifice. For this cannot be brought about artificially, 
but must be connected with the whole karma of such a person who is called upon to make a sacrifice and who has something to do that is destined to play a part in the spiritual advancement of mankind, as indeed lies behind our intentions for this building in Dornach that is to house our spiritual scientific endeavors. But now bring to your awareness that we are living at a time when many, many such etheric bodies, not from people of so young an age, but nevertheless from those who are still young, will be in the spiritual atmosphere. Those who have passed through the gate of death on the bloody fields of battle all pass differently through the gate of death from someone who dies in his bed or through an ordinary accident or misfortune. The way that they cross the threshold of death is that in a certain sense they reckon with their death, even though more or less subconsciously. Their astral body reckons to a certain degree with death. Indeed, one can always speak of a sacrifice in the case of such a death. All the etheric bodies of young people that thus ascend into the spiritual world will have unused forces. And we are living in a period of human evolution when human souls will be able consciously to look up into the spiritual world and say to themselves, A time has gone by that has sent many, many unspent etheric bodies into the spiritual world, and unspent etheric bodies contain forces, of which we can already say today, from a spiritual scientific standpoint, what significance they will have for the evolution of mankind. When things of this nature are discussed, one must emphasize that what can be said in this regard does not apply to every war that has taken place on earth in the course of human evolution. What is going on spiritually and can be discerned with the help of spiritual science is not as simple as natural science would make it. Other wars in former times demanded that they be spoken of differently. What I have to say now applies to our present fateful times. Just consider the following. I have on various occasions and at various opportunities had to emphasize that there is nothing arbitrary about whether we pursue spiritual science today, but that it is really part of the evolutionary process of mankind that people gradually familiarize themselves with spiritual science. We know that every epoch of human evolution has a particular task, We can discover this from several of my lecture cycles, and we may be aware that the blossoming of the future and immediately impending evolution of humanity can be ensured only if what can be revealed through spiritual science may become the spiritual and intellectual property of an ever greater number of souls. But now let all of you who are for the most part full of a heartfelt enthusiasm for spiritual science, consider what difficulties are associated with the propagation of spiritual scientific truths at the present time. Consider the extent to which people out in the world oppose these spiritual scientific truths. Consider, too, how these truths are slandered, how people look upon them as daft, crazy and insane, and as sheer fantasy. I could give some striking examples, but all examples would form only a small part of what 
everyone who has enthusiasm for spiritual science can feel when he confronts a world that he would so dearly want to take an interest in spiritual science and that has so little wish to do so today. The spiritual scientist may now say that what the mere earthly forces of mankind are able to attain seems so weak, utterly weak in comparison to the tasks of spiritual science. But in the near future, the unspent etheric bodies of those who have had to carry their lives and souls through the portal of death on the battlefields of our time will be there. And these etheric bodies, with their unused forces, will be forces of inspiration and help in the near future. We only need to develop the attitude of looking up, not in a theoretical intellectual way, but with our hearts and souls, to the heavenly etheric bodies of those who have in our destiny-laden time passed through the gate of death in their early youth, and to direct our souls as in a mood of prayer to these etheric bodies. And those who are filled with enthusiasm for spiritual science need only to direct their souls toward these forces, and they will receive help from these etheric bodies. Thus, if an ardent spiritual engagement with these etheric bodies becomes possible through a real embracing of spiritual scientific ideas, among the many fruits that may be engendered by our destiny-laden time will be that the forces residing in these etheric bodies sacrificed by young people will flow into the souls of those people of the future who have an enthusiasm for spiritual science. The forces of sacrificed etheric bodies will therefore be able to stream through the souls of those who will be living in a physical body in the near future if these souls are pervaded by a genuine understanding for this. And these will be heavenly forces, that is, forces of the spiritual world. Entirely different forces will then hold sway in the world in order to be able to bring to this world the spiritual scientific convictions that need to come to it. If we can but find the possibility of recognizing what is taking place now in accordance with the explanations that have been given, these fateful times will acquire a deep significance also for those who are involved with spiritual science. As we have said, the imaginative forms that indwell man's etheric body are magnificent. Nevertheless, they would present a different aspect if they had not passed through a human etheric body. But the proposition, quote, out of nothing comes nothing, close quote, is also valid in this realm. This is not an absolute truth, but it is valid in this particular realm. Thus the etheric body that a person receives, through the fact of a human soul entering physical existence through birth, gathers forces of the spiritual world that are used during physical life. These forces are not derived from nothing. They exist in the spiritual world. They may, of course, be discovered in the spiritual world, but it is difficult to find them directly there. Far greater powers would be needed for this. If, however, they have passed through a physical human being who died young and appear to one together with what they have within them, 
through passing through that human being, it is easier to avail oneself of their help. All the forces that lived in the youthful etheric body of little Theodor Feiss would otherwise be in the spiritual world, but it would, in a spiritual sense, be a Herculean task to draw them forth without him. Because they have become available through the boy, it has become significantly easier and also a different process to be inspired by them. Think how enormously significant it is for the whole further evolution of mankind that such a great number of etheric bodies with unused forces is being made available to it in the immediate future. But through the circumstance, through the fact that these heavenly, and I must emphasize the word heavenly, forces have passed through human beings, these forces have, as it were, been freed from the laws within which they belong in the cosmos. It is impossible for these forces that are drawn directly from the cosmos to be used in an evil way. We may regard it as a fact that without the war, all those people who are now passing through the gate of death, as a result of the war or through other related circumstances, would not be providing such a quantity of etheric bodies. All these forces would, of course, anyway exist in the cosmos, but they could not be used by human beings on earth because it would be too difficult to use them. Another reason why they could not be used would be that they would be being used in the lives of those reaching their normal age. It is of great significance that these heavenly forces have passed through human bodies, that thereby become free from the ordinary process of evolution, and this freedom makes it possible for these forces to be used for purposes other than the good of humanity. They can also be used in a different way. Human life has to evolve in the light of freedom. Let us suppose that Araman would succeed in darkening the thoughts and reasoning power of human beings to such an extent that they would reject spiritual science. These etheric bodies would then be there, but there would be no souls inspired by spiritual science to place these forces at the service of earthly progress. Lucifer and Araman would then intervene and would be able to use them to further the kingdom of either Lucifer or Araman. Just think how immensely significant this is. It means that it has been entrusted to human hands, as it were, to determine in what way the forces that have been made available to the world through sacrificial deaths are incorporated in earthly evolution. There is the possibility that if they bring inspiration to what has been kindled through spiritual science, they will serve the evolutionary progress of the earth. But it could also be that if materialism were to extend its grip over all minds, or if nationalism were to be disseminated in a purely passionate way, Lucifer or Araman would put these forces to the service of their own ends, and these forces would then be unable to further the advancement of earthly evolution. Only if one becomes aware of these connections does one realize the whole deep significance of spiritual science for the evolution of humanity and the earth. Only then will one be enabled to say how necessary it is 
that if sacrificial forces are to be used in the right way in evolution, there are human individuals who are capable of understanding the insights that can emanate from spiritual science. Thus, if one considers spiritual science in the context of the spiritual background to these destiny-laden days of ours, it becomes something immeasurably great and sacred. The intellectual awareness that we can develop from spiritual science will thereby become something that can be compared to a prayer that can be summarized in the words, O Cosmic Spirit, let us be wholly imbued with these convictions emanating from spiritual science, so that we may not fail in the right sense to wrest from Lucifer and Araman what can bring salvation and genuine progress to the earth. Our building is intended to serve as a symbol of the ideas and convictions that spiritual science wishes to make manifest to mankind. Hence it is constructed in such a way that in its forms there comes artistically to expression what spiritual science can give. I would have to say much if I were to explain to you what is contained in every detail of this building. You will become familiar with all this when you come to see the building over the next few years and participate in what takes place within it. I wish today to speak of only one aspect in connection with what I have just explained. At a significant place in the building, at the point where it is directed toward the east, there will be a sculptural group. This sculptural group is intended to give expression in particular to what the consciousness of our time must imbue itself with in the right measure. Apart from what will be added to it, this group will essentially consist of three figures. Three beings will come to expression in this group. A kind of rock will feature in it. This rock has a ledge that projects forward, and beneath this projection is a cavity. The central figure will stand upon the projected rock. One may call it whatever one wishes, but one will need to see in it the representative of earthly humanity in the highest sense of the word. And if one sees the ideal of earthly humanity in that human being, who for three years of his earthly life bore the Christ within himself, one will also be able to see the Christ in this central figure. But this should not happen in such a way that one comes before this group with a consciousness that it is meant to be the Christ, for everything must be felt artistically. This means that it should not be interpreted in an outwardly symbolic way, but everything must follow from the forms. Up here is a second being. This being has a head that resembles, I can only say that it resembles a human head. One might say that a human head is reminiscent of this head, for it is formed in such a way that the skull is powerfully developed and especially the forehead. Whereas in man these parts are relatively fixed, in this being everything is mobile, that is, everything is expressive of the soul. Just as we can move our hands and fingers, but not the upper part of our head, this being can move everything in this region. One can see from the work that has been done on the sculpture that everything there is mobile. The lower part of this being's face recedes quite markedly. One could say that the mighty form of the skull dominates the rest of the face. 
I can only speak about certain aspects, for each individual line of this figure is of great significance. A characteristic feature is that there is in this being a connection between what in man has atrophied and become the larynx and the ear. The lobe of the larynx extends upward and becomes the lower part of the ears, while their upper part is formed by the brow. On the other side there are two structures resembling birds' wings, between which there is a form that as a whole gives the impression of a transformed human countenance. Wings and larynx and ear are formed as one entity, so that one can see that with its wings this being lives in the music of the spheres, and this is localized in the ear. In man all this has atrophied. Through the raising of the left hand of the representative of humanity, the wings of this figure are broken on the rock, and as a result it plunges down from the rock. You would be right to suppose that this figure falling down from the rock with its broken wings is meant to portray Lucifer. Down here, in the cave, there is another figure. Instead of bird-like wings, it has wings resembling those of a bat, a kind of dragon-like or worm-like body, and a head that is again reminiscent of a human head. But the mighty development of the brow possessed by Lucifer has totally receded in this figure. It has atrophied. The lower parts, as far as the mouth, are strongly developed in this figure, and it is entwined by what within the earth is gold. The gold of the earth becomes bonds that chain this figure. It is bent beneath the influence emanating from the hand of the representative of humanity, the Christ, as it extends downward. This figure down below is Araman, fettered by the gold of the earth. With what I have just said, you will have some idea of the whole. But this idea only gives some indication of what it is about. We would never want to imitate the bad habit of the old theosophists, who always worked with symbols. What matters to us is that everything emanating from spiritual science that tends toward human feeling is transformed into something artistic. One should not therefore not say that these forms express this or that, but that through what they are artistically and through what one sees in them, they portray the relationship of man or of Christ to Lucifer and Araman. This therefore also cannot come to expression with the old artistic means. Every movement of the fingers and of the hands and the way that the hands are formed will be significant, for they need to express something significant. One could initially have the idea that Christ raises his left hand and, through what he wills, transmits forces that break Lucifer's wings so that he falls, and that through the hand that he extends downward, forces are again released that bind Araman. And yet it would be quite incorrect to think like this. In order to explain the full significance of this, I should like to remind you of something that is one of the greatest works of art hitherto produced, titled The Last Judgment by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Here one sees Christ sending the good to heaven and the wicked to hell. Christ appears as one who dispatches some to the good world and others to somewhere less pleasant. 
This Christ as he is portrayed is not the Christ whom we may understand in his true nature only through spiritual science. Christ who is the true Christ does not condemn, does not delight in applying anger or ordinary love, but he works through what he is. Lucifer's wings are not broken, but he breaks them himself through his own soul condition as he comes close to Christ. And Araman binds himself through what goes on in his soul as he is in the proximity of Christ. Hence Christ's hands as they are raised and extended downward must express nothing but the purest compassion for the world. Lucifer in his lofty vantage point cannot bear the hand of Christ coming close to him and because of what he is inwardly experiencing he breaks his wings. It is not that Christ breaks them, but he breaks them himself. It is similar with Araman. Michelangelo did not yet understand how to portray Christ as he really is. The Christ being is so significant, the understanding of the Christ being is so difficult, that this can only be achieved in the course of time. Only in future will the Christ, who causes beings to condemn or redeem themselves, by virtue of what he is, be understood. The way that Michelangelo has portrayed him still has something luciferic and aramonic about it, because through his anger he leads the evil to hell and the good to heaven and is therefore governed by his passions, whereas here the Christ's stance is not a personal one, and the beings who come near to him judge themselves. You see, from this that man's position in the world, which includes the Luciferic and Aramonic forces, will come to expression in a prominent place in our building, that beings must be depicted who can be found only in the spiritual world. All naturalism in art, everything toward which art has aspired in recent times, as a result of the materialism that has taken hold of human beings, must be overcome by the art that is being nurtured here. Something so entirely new must also artistically enter the world through spiritual science that it will also transcend even the greatest of artistic achievements, Michelangelo's figure of Christ in the Last Judgment. It is permissible to say such things, if on the one hand one emphasizes something that should not be forgotten, that our building can of course be no more than a primitive beginning for all this. Everything is imperfect, everything is elementary, everything is only a beginning, but it is the beginning of something totally new. We can of course be aware that everything is imperfect, but it is essential to draw attention to something that is an impulse which will enter into the whole of human life. Consider how easy it would be to pass by with indifference a gift of human life, consisting of the unspent etheric bodies of human beings. Consider that the forces of these etheric bodies could fall prey to Lucifer and Araman, if it is not possible for us to use them as a healing impulse for earthly evolution. We are touching here upon a great mystery associated with the evolution of humanity on earth, the mystery of the relationship of the Christ impulse to those of Lucifer and of Araman. It will increasingly become possible to understand this relationship of the Christ impulse to that of Lucifer and to that of Araman 
in the near future. Luciferic and Aramonic forces exert their influence in the world, and through his consciousness of Christ, man must become like a being who is, as it were, sitting in a boat that has to navigate its path amidst the storms stirred up by Lucifer and Araman. It will find its way through the sea, whose living substance consists of Lucifer and Araman, but through which man can, nevertheless, ply his Christ boat. We do not come together in our branches in order to learn in a theoretical way something that spiritual science can reveal to us. Rather, do we gather here so that what lives in our souls is filled with an inner orientation that can flow from this spiritual science? What matters is not what we think out of spiritual science, but how we think, feel, and will, and whether we focus our attention on the most insignificant or the greatest things that we can observe in the earthly evolution of humanity. Everything shows us how necessary it is for the people of the future to familiarize themselves with the significance of the threefoldness of Christ, Lucifer, and Araman. Not only Michelangelo, but also the times that are now past, have not been able rightly to see how this threefoldness has its place in the world. But one will also only rightly come to know Christ in his essential reality if one sees him in his relationship to the beings of Lucifer and Araman who work in the world as its south and north poles. Much will be said about these matters in the coming days for those who are able to be present. It has been my wish today to place before your souls thoughts that enable one to see that the ideas of spiritual science also have an importance for significant events, that someone who can perceive what is happening physically in its spiritual context will be able to discern taking place in the spiritual world in the near future. One would, in this sense, entreat the good gods and spirits who protect the earth and humanity to give human beings the strength so that what must happen for the healing and well-being of mankind can take place. Up there in the realms of spirit will be the unused etheric forces of young people who have passed through death. But there must on earth be human hearts and human souls that look up to these forces so that they can be led by them in the right evolutionary direction. It is not only essential that these forces, which can fall prey to Lucifer and Araman, are there, but it is of essential importance that in physical bodies there are human souls who send their reverent thoughts up to these sacrificial etheric bodies. On this will it depend how the forces that have been forged on the bloody battlefields, where these sacrifices are made, and suffering is born, flow into the evolution of mankind. This more or less indicates the contribution that can be made from spiritual science to the future course of human evolution, if there are a number of people who understand what can be recognized only by spiritual science. I should like in conclusion once again to express to you in a few pragmatic words what can potentially arise out of these present destiny-laden times, quote, from the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, 
from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice. There will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. The end of Lecture 12